We have uh, been in a series uh, for the last five or six weeks or so since Easter called We Believe. And the purpose of this series for us has been to remind us of what matters. To remind us of what it is we say we believe as Christians. You see, throughout history, what often happens when we leave the foundationals behind, the things that are of most importance, we pick up things that are not as important and we make them foundational. And so what I wanted to do as, as we came into this series was first and foremost remind us of what it is that we believe, but second, to clear up any misconceptions about what it is that we believe as Christians, what is important for us. And so the first thing that, that we went over was just the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that that is central to our faith. And while that may be central to our faith, the foundation, the beginning of our faith is not us, but it is God. Our belief about who God is is foundational to the way that we live our lives. And so we talked about the reality that God is Father, He is Son, He is Holy Spirit, He is three in one. And we moved on to how we know about these truths in the divine revelation that God has revealed Himself to us in creation and in the Word and in Christ Jesus, that God has been revealed. We can know this God because He has revealed Himself to us. And then we moved into, okay, if this is who God is, now who are we? And we spoke for uh, a few weeks on God's good design for humanity and how that is restored in Christ and how we believe that restoration plays out in the church and in the home. And this week, it's time for us to focus our attention on a question. A question that we've somewhat answered throughout this series, but we need to spend a bit of time with it to fully understand it. Um, how many in here have played the game Jenga? A few? All right. All right. I am usually a strategic person in life. I like to think of myself as a strategic person, but when it comes to Jenga, I'm the guy who goes for the, the hardest piece every time because I just want to see, maybe I'm just a little bit sick. I don't know what that is. I just want to see the world crumble. I mean, uh, I just want to see the tower fall or I want to see if I can get it. The... the the game of Jenga, there are two types of players, right? There are the, the types of players that will grab from the top and they'll grab the easy ones and they usually win. And then there are the types of players that recognize there are pieces in that Jenga tower that if I pull them, will fall. The doctrine that we're going to be discussing today is not a top layer doctrine. It's not one that you can take off and then pretend as if it's not that big of a deal and the game keeps going. The, the doctrine we're going to be discussing today is one of the pieces that if you pull out, the entire tower will crumble and fall. Which means it's important for us. Because if we lose this piece, we lose Christianity. Today we're going to be discussing the person and work of Christ in as I said before, this is not a top piece. It's not something that we can just kind of playfully run around with. It's also not a piece that if we pull it out, it somewhat shakes the tower, but it still stays. No, it is, it is a piece. 
if we remove the person and work of Christ from Christian belief, the whole thing will crumble. The entire thing will crumble. And so here's what we believe as Christians. We believe that it is only by faith in the redemptive work of Christ and the grace of God that salvation is accomplished and we are reconciled to God. Let me put it this way. Maybe you've been asked the question before, uh, how are we saved? So let me ask you that question right now. How are we saved? I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it, and I want you to think about it in terms that a first grader would be able to answer. How are we saved? You see, it's very easy for us to respond to this question with the right answer, Jesus, right? Like, that's not a difficult answer to come up with in church. In fact, if you showed up to a church, the answer is typically Jesus, that's usually the answers to the questions that are being asked. So in the answer to the question, how are we being saved, we say Jesus, and that's an easy answer to give, but many of us come away with a variety of definitions for what we mean by that. Excuse me. So we need to answer a few other questions today. <coughs> I was gauging... On Wednesday of this week, Jill and I came down with the same thing, just a head cold and congestion. I was gauging how long I would get without coughing, and she was here for about eight minutes, and I've hit seven, so she is uh, winning the competition if there is one. <coughs> how are we saved? What do we need saving from? You see, we can say Jesus saves us and have various ideas of what we mean by that, but if we don't know what it is we're saved from, then we have no idea how to answer the question of how we're saved. Like, is there just a boogie monster in the closet somewhere that's going to come out, or is there a guy with horns and a pitchfork that's chasing us? Like, what is, what is it that we're in need of salvation from is a question we need to answer. We also need to answer the question, how does this salvation we're talking about happen? Like, are there multiple ways to be saved? Is this like all roads lead to London type of thing, or is this a specific way in which we are saved? Is there an exclusive way in which we're saved as Christians? And we also need to answer the question, <coughs> who can save it? Us. Is it up to us? Do we need some magic beans that we found from some sketchy dude at a market somewhere? Is it a formula that we look to, or is there a specific person that can save us. Is it us or is it someone else? You see, we need to answer those questions and I'm going to try to answer those questions today in order for us to answer the greatest question, how are we saved? If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 5 with me. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Romans 5, we're going to read that whole chapter, but before we do, let me give us a little bit of context. Paul writes this letter, the, the letter to the Romans, to a church that is in Rome. Now, this church in Rome is a bit of a basket case, and let me tell you why. Um, like most churches in the New Testament and like most churches throughout history, just so you know, um, 
we're all a bit of a basket case. Uh, Paul writes this letter to a church that started off primarily as a Jewish community. So it's a, it's a, it's a group of Christians that are primarily Jewish in their ethnicity. But as the gospel spreads, non-Jewish individuals are getting saved and becoming part of the church. Due to some unique political dynamics, all Jews are exiled from the city of Rome. <clears throat> so you have all the Jews exiled from the city of Rome, and then the non-Jewish Christians that have come to faith by the power of the gospel have had to start stepping up and taking the leadership of the church. And so they start to take on the church, and fast forward a few years, exile ends, and the Jews begin to come back. Jewish Christians are now invited back into their church. They're returning from exile from the Roman Empire, and their home church is where they go to first and they're so excited to be a part of their home church again, but they get there and with leadership dynamics changing, the church as a whole has changed. You see, they went from having a Jewish community that got saved and planted a church in Rome to being a church that was largely Gentiles, having no Jewish background, and now these Jews have come back to this church and they found a very non-Jewish Christian church. And they're wondering what to do about this. And there begins to be power struggles within the church. They're happening in the church. There's division. And so Paul, and the famous apostle Paul, takes it on himself to write a letter to this church. He sees this church as being incredibly strategic for his future missional endeavors. And so he writes a letter to this church. And everyone in this church, amidst the division, has now gathered to listen to the letter from Paul to the church in Rome. <coughs> Phoebe, one of Paul's co-laborers in the ministry, she opens the letter and she begins to read this letter. And the major headline of the book is that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel which is God's goodness. It's the good news that God saves and that God reigns. That's the theme, the major headline of this book. And she gets into Romans chapter 1 through 3, and she begins by reading and talking about how all nations have been consigned to ungodliness. All of them are unrighteous. She basically just begins to read Paul's first three chapters, and it says everyone is broken, everyone is sinful, everyone has abandoned God. And then in chapter 2, she says, this is what Paul says, no, really, even the Jews. And then chapter 3, it's, no, seriously, everyone's broken. Just because you are God's chosen people in the Old Testament does not mean that you have a different status with God. No one does good is the point of Paul's first three chapters. And so three chapters in, you've got this church that's more divided than together being reminded of one thing they've all got in common. That they're all broken. And that they're all a mess. And that they are all sinners and they all desperately need God. And then Romans 4 comes along, and, and Paul begins to turn his attention. And so Phoebe, as she's reading this letter, turns the audience's attention to the hope of the gospel that has been the same hope the people of God have held on to since the days of Abraham, who's the father of the Jewish people. When he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that truth was recorded for the church in Rome, according to Paul in Romans chapter 4. Not just for Abraham's sake, but for the church's sake. 
And so chapter 4 ends with this beautiful, beautiful statement. It says this, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. For it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul brings them to this crescendo moment, this moment of realizing that the gospel has been the same since the beginning of the Jewish people. To believe in God counted as righteousness. It's God's righteousness that leads to righteousness. And then he opens up chapter 5. Chapter 5, which has had thousands upon thousands of pages written about it, we're going to try and do it in 30 minutes. Let's go. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through the whole chapter. Therefore, <clears throat> since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Behind on the screen. There we go. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, this is your word. We want to rejoice in the good news of it this morning, and so I pray that you would gift us with ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church today through the word of God written to the church in Rome. God, give us, give us your grace. Not because we deserve it, because it is who you are, a God who is ridiculously generous with his love. Help us to see that this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's real quickly um, pull apart that first verse. If you have a Bible, I, I really think you need it in front of you this morning. Uh, we're going to just be sitting in Romans 5 uh, as much as possible. So if you have a Bible, Romans 5, verse 1. Um, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the first thing we need to ask is, uh, maybe you've read, you had a Bible teaching class and somebody's taught you how to read the Bible before, maybe you haven't, but here's a really good interpretive key. When the word therefore comes up, there's just a really ni nice trick. What's it there for? What is it there for? Why is this phrase here, it's pointing back for us. And so this is what Paul's doing here with this word. He is saying, considering all the bad news, considering conversations surrounding the reality that ethnicity or country of origin doesn't get you in the door, considering justification by Christ's work alone, now we have to recognize that we have been justified. This is a corporate, a communal, it's a we have been justified. This is legal language. It's, uh, it's, to use an illustration, he's talking about store credit. Now, um, I'm from uh, the age where, as a kid, we just played video games a lot. I don't know when that turned, but that was kind of my childhood, was a lot of video games. And so there was this store that was really popular when I was a kid called GameStop. And my family, we didn't have a, a ton of money. And so, uh, therefore, video games were not like, I always had like three video games after the new ones that would come out. And so I'd try to get all my games together. And you could go to GameStop and you could trade in your video games to get store credit. And then that store credit could be built up in order to get what was ridiculously expensive video games. And so I would trade in as much as I could. I would bring all of my games to the GameStop and I would try to get store credit enough to get games. Essentially what we're talking about here is that the righteousness you and I have been given has been credited to our account. What I mean by that is you have store credit with God. You have store credit with God. But it's not because you brought your games. Although, some of us need to bring our games and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Um, please. Uh, it's to have God's righteousness credited to our account. God's righteousness has been given to you as store credit. So, in, in other words, the owner of righteousness has come to your case and has said, put it on my tab. <laughs> 
I got this. The owner of righteousness has given you his righteousness. It's, it's in other words, to be declared righteous. Justification is to be declared righteous. It's, it's an inside-out type of work that's happening here. Here's what I mean by that. Many of us and, and many religions in the world believe that the work that we have to do is the, the thing we need saving from is outside of us. The thing we need saving from is outside of us. And so we have to muster up this inner courage or self-actualization in order to attain salvation from the things that are outside of us. And here's what Christianity says. Here's what the Bible says. The issue is internal. You've just got problems. You have problems. You have issues. And they are internal. And the solution for those things is not internal. It is external. It's an outside righteousness that comes inside and is given to you. Paul's argument so far throughout this entire book has been, you aren't righteous. No one is. In fact, we are all unrighteous. There is nothing we can bring to the table except our need for righteousness. And then he switches to chapter 5, which is that we can enjoy and experience peace with God because we have been declared righteous by God. You see... Look at the way that this passage works. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Okay, so there's a justification happening. We have been justified. The result of that is righteousness. The result of that is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we get that declared righteousness? How does that peace with God happen? By faith. By faith. Faith in what? Well, we just talked about it in verses 24 through 25 of chapter 4. By faith in Jesus. By faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead, who has been delivered up from our trespasses. So back to that question, how are we saved? We need to answer, what do we need saving from? Not a boogeyman. Not just some pitchfork, horn-wearing, Halloween costume dude. We need saving from our trespasses from ourselves. And Jesus has been delivered up from that and then the result are delivered up for that and the result of that justification is since we have been justified, since Jesus has justified us, we have peace with God. Peace with God. This is the chief benefit of our salvation. What do you get from being saved? What does being saved mean? It means you have peace with God, which is wild as we start to get into this text a little more. How does that happen? We, we go back to the garden, Genesis chapter 1 through 3. We're going to be in the, that a little bit today as we deal with Adam, but we've spent a few weeks in that passage, so we should be somewhat familiar with it. How does peace with God happen. In, in the garden, you have Adam and Eve who sinned, and what does it lead to? It leads to a fracturing of relationship with God. Broken relationship. And so when, when Paul says here that peace with God is made possible through the justification by faith alone that you and I have in Christ Jesus, what he is saying is that God is restoring relationship. He's bringing about 
peace with him. It's no longer brokenness between us and God. That relationship's been made right. So how, how can peace with God happen? Only if sins are forgiven. Only if we've been made righteous. That word justification to be declared righteous. And so then we have to ask the question, okay, so this is what we're saved from. We're saved from ourselves. We know that we, we need saving from our trespasses. And then we have to ask the question, okay, if we need saving from ourselves, who can save us? Who can save us? Thank you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ is what the text says. This peace with God that is reconciled, that's brought about through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a loaded term. We love the word Lord Jesus Christ in 21st century because it just sounds fun to say. We use it in prayers all the time. Um, but we don't understand what Paul's doing here with the word Lord. You see, um, in, in the uh, early church, there would have been a translation of the Old Testament in Greek called the Septuagint. Bear with me here. This matters. In the Old Testament, the way Yahweh would have been translated would have been with the word Kyrios, which means Lord. Here in this passage, Paul uses that exact same word to describe Jesus Christ. Paul is tying Jesus' identity to divinity. Here, anytime Paul uses the term Lord, that's not an off phrase. He is giving the status of divinity to Jesus Christ. Here's why this matters. Um, Paul is emphatic that for us to understand what has been done for us, we must understand that it was God who did it. Peace with God through the Son. Love is then poured out upon us, made real to us, applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So there's two ways that we can understand this chapter of the Bible. The first is that Jesus is God or each of us is responsible. That's how we have to pull out this passage. The first is that Jesus is God and so God saves. Or the second is that Jesus is just a man. He's nothing more than a man. And so now you and I are each responsible for our own working of righteousness. If we understand it as our responsibility, salvation is impossible for us. Look at verse 8 for me. We're going to be bouncing around, but it's good. Verse 8. If Jesus is just a man... This verse makes no sense to us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can God show his love while somebody else is doing something? God is the one showing love through Christ. If Jesus is just a man, how could it be God showing his love in Christ's death? God's love is shown to us in Christ is a claim of divinity. That when Jesus operates, it's God operating. We dealt with this in Colossians, that in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Where Jesus works, God works. And then we've got to unpack the implications of that that show up in verses 6 through 11. But first, I want to ask the question, because I think Paul's trying to get us to this with some of his work here in the passage. Would anyone die for you? 
I hope that you could say yes to that. I hope you have some loved ones that would actually think that they would die for you. But here's, here's what Paul is trying to get at in this passage. If all of your messiness was just on display, your worst moments, your deepest, darkest secrets, your perceived righteousness with the true motives behind them, if all of that was on display, would any random person on the side of the road decide, yeah, I'm going to give up my life for this individual? Maybe according to Paul. Maybe. You see, uh, first century readers would have been very familiar with what's called the honorable death. Honorable death would be giving your life for your country in some senses, or, or saving someone, or rescuing someone, but you really only did it for people of higher class or higher, higher status. And so when Paul is writing this letter in this passage, when he's talking about, would somebody die for you? What he's talking about is the concept of honorable death. And then he shows up here and he essentially says that Christ died for the ungodly. That's not an honorable death. In fact, that in the Roman culture would have been like, why would you do that? Like if we're really honest with ourselves, we, we just are not that awesome. We're just not as awesome as we want everyone to think we are. We aren't strong, but we're weak. We aren't godly, but ungodly. We aren't righteous, but sinners. We aren't at peace with God, but enemies of God. But the good news is that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At verse 8, Christ died while we were still sinners. And what Paul's trying to get at is that the idea that someone would see all of who you are and actually do that is rare. The idea that someone righteous would do that for someone unrighteous is shocking. I've been studying the book of Habakkuk in my morning devotions, and, and this fascinating thing is happening. The prophet Habakkuk is looking at the nation of Israel, and he is saying, God, how could you let all of this unrighteousness happen? And God responds with, I'm not. I'm bringing judgment. That judgment is going to come from the Babylonians. And, and Habakkuk is shocked. And the original readers would be shocked. And we should be shocked because the Babylonians were an unrighteous, cruel, wicked people. How could God bring judgment with unrighteousness? It's... it's asking us to ask the question, how in the world could God judge someone who is better than with unrighteousness? And the book of Habakkuk is going to give us two answers to that. The first is that the righteous shall live by faith, which is Romans 1. The second is it's asking us to actually get to the point of saying, could God judge a righteous person on behalf of unrighteous people. And what Paul's trying to get us to see here in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, is that God, the only righteous, has judged Jesus, the only righteous, on behalf of the ungodly. 
This passage is stunning. So let's slow down for a moment and ask a question. What is the kind of person that Christ dies for? Well, weak, ungodly sinners. And then if we go to verse 10, enemies of God enemies of God. These are the people Jesus came to save. When we find ourselves weak, ungodly, at enmity with God, we are in just the right place for Christ to do his best work. By faith in Christ, these are the types of people who can be reconciled to him. Now, as Christians, the narrative changes, and we get to rejoice that as Christians, we have been saved from sin's penalty. Christ takes on the punishment for us by shedding his blood. Now, as Christians, we are being saved from sin's power. Christ takes on the power of sin for us in his resurrection. Sin does not have the final word over your life anymore. In other words, before God saved you in Christ, sin had total power over you. You always said yes to sin, but now we, by grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, make, who makes God's love known to us, have the capacity to say no to sin. We are being saved from its power in Christ. And one day as Christians, we will be fully and finally saved from sin's presence. Upon Christ's return, sin will be gone forever. So let's follow Paul's argument here. We're doing a lot of text work today, and it's good for us. Uh, if while you were an enemy, God saved you, how much more now that you have been reconciled to God? Will he continue to save you? <laughs> In other words, if this is what God does for his enemies, right? So this is who all of us were. We were ungodly. We were unrighteous. We were uh, in need of rescuing. We were sinners. We were enemies of God. And in that place, God saves us. Christ dies for us. How much more so now that you are a son or daughter? Will God go about reconciling you to himself? This is the, the, the point of this passage, the point of the gospel that we need to grab hold of and never let go of it is that it's simply by faith in Christ and his redemptive work, the grace of God that our salvation is accomplished. It's not I get in the door and then I move on. It is constantly, for the rest of our lives, by faith, collapsing into the arms of Christ, who has given himself up for you and has reconciled you to God. So who is this Jesus? We've mentioned that he is God. It is God who saves us. He saves us in such a way that, that is only by the work of God, by crediting the righteousness of Jesus onto our behalf. But that's who can save us. Now, how does that salvation happen? Paul's going to go on in this chapter to, to talking about Adam, which is back in the beginning. And he, he says these words. He says, Sin came into the world through the one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men 
because all sin. So this is a, a concept that, that we don't always get, but it actually influences our life. I've used the illustration before that my wife and I have a USAA membership, and just because I have bald hair does not mean I've ever served in the military. And so um, I have not served in the military yet because I have a grandfather who has. I get to be a part of USAA and get better rates for my home and auto insurance because of my familial head who served on my behalf. So, what this passage is saying is that in Adam, in Adam, our head, you and I have been consigned to sin. Now this is not arguing that we had not sinned. In fact, he says, all have sinned. Death spread to all men because all have sinned. But the reality of humanity is that humanity is consigned over to sin because Adam, our head, sinned. And as a result, all have sinned. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You see, Jesus was not just God, but he was also man. He was, uh, in, in the words, he was fully divine, fully human, and fully God. And that's important. You see, because of the humanity of Christ, what we see in Jesus is true humanity. Here in Jesus comes restored humanity. What Christ does as mankind is absolutely incredible. He offers to God everything that you and I owe to God. He, imagine with me, if you will, uh, that you are taking a test and you have studied for weeks for this test. You have put in all that you could to, to make this test work. And, and you go and you take the test and you just completely bomb it. You completely fail. Right? Not even a single question right. The, the, the professor is just astounded at this. Um, the worst test they've ever seen. And so you're walking out of the room and you're like, oh my goodness, what have I done? Like, what am I going to do. That was, that was it. That was, my, that was my grade for the year. That was my career. That was my life. The, the, the test I failed was my life. As you're walking out, you pass this Middle Eastern man who looks like he hasn't bathed in a bit. And you're like, all right, this is very interesting. And he goes inside the room and he sits down at the table and he takes the test and he gets every answer right. Every answer right. Perfect. Perfect. Perfect rightness. And he writes your name at the top of that. And he goes and he goes to the professor and he says, here, I, I want to give you this test and I'm going to take the test that, that the man who just walked out of here, the woman who just walked out of here, I'm going to write my name on that one. And that professor's insane, so the professor says, yes, okay, absolutely. Um, that's not a good, see, analogies always break down. Um, in his humanity, in his perfect obedience to God's commands, he offers to God the obedience that we are incapable of giving him because of our fallen nature. You see, if Jesus is not a human, then we don't have a new head. 
We don't get the benefits of his work. In Christ, we see perfect righteousness on display, righteousness supplied on our behalf. And this is what Paul is trying to get at in the back half of this chapter, that Jesus, in his humanity, gave us a greater gift than the trespass. In his perfect obedience to God's commands, in Christ, we see perfect righteousness on display, righteousness displayed and supplied on our behalf. <clears throat> One theologian says this, he says, all the righteousness we will ever need is in the Son of God who took upon himself our flesh, our likeness, our human nature. Not only does he positively supply the righteousness, but on the cross, our Savior dies and pays the penalty that humanity owed. He dies in our place. We owe God not only righteousness, but now because we didn't supply that righteousness, we also owe God our lives, our death, our blood. Christ takes our place and he supplies to God the sacrifice on our behalf that satisfies God's demands for righteousness. <clears throat> in other words, you got his perfect A and he got your failed test on his report card. We have a new representative now. In order to be one with us, God had to take on human flesh. In order to be for us a perfect offering, he had to take upon himself our nature. And where death used to reign, now Christ reigns. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because death took what did not belong to it in Jesus, it became the transgressor. And the man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, laid death down in his grave. You see, how are we saved is a question that we have to answer. We're saved by faith in the work of God in Jesus Christ, that it is only by faith in the redemptive work of Christ who gave it all for us, who as a human perfectly obeyed the law and as God, his obedience was sufficient for us. It's only by the grace of God that that salvation is accomplished. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the fully human, fully divine, the, the Word made flesh who on our behalf dies the death that we deserve, creates a transgressor out of death, and declares us righteous in the sight of God. But the reality is, you and I, we have so many ways in which we functionally try to save ourselves. Maybe it's by our performance. We think, man, if I, if I do enough, I can earn God's favor. Or, or if, I, if I do enough at work, maybe I can be the type of individual that people would look at and say, yes, approved, righteous. And so we, we set up these other rulers over our life to declare righteousness above us. 
And what God is saying is that the declaration of righteousness does not come from yourself. It comes only in Christ by faith in him, by believing that he is enough. And so maybe you're looking at your status and you're saying, if society can approve of me, if they can tap the gavel on my life saying righteous, they're popular, they're everything that I ever needed. And then maybe if they could approve of the way that you live your life, you would say, yes, I'm righteous. But that's not, that's not the way. The way is through faith in Jesus Christ. Peace with God does not happen by our own ability. It happens through Christ's work who was God in the flesh, who gave for us everything we needed for righteousness. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. You see, we need the the real Jesus. We don't need fake versions of him. We need the real Jesus. We need his humanity who, as a human, can now sympathize with our weaknesses and yet redeem us. We need his divinity who, as our God, gives us the righteousness we so desperately need. And I want you to notice with me the result of this. The result of this righteousness, the the result of all of this, in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, death no longer reigns. Death does not have the final word righteousness does over your life as a Christian. Grace over your life as a Christian now has the final word. And your life is not to end in death. Death is not defeat. But for those of us who are in Christ, eternal life is given to us. I've had to, I've been a part of a lot of funerals lately. Um, And it's just a good reminder for me. A good reminder for me uh, of a reality. That my death is inevitable. (laughs) And I tell you what. To know that on that day, what will be credited to my account is not all that I have done, but all that he has done is the only hope that any of us have. You see, if we lose this, if we lose this reality that he is our human savior, that he is God who saves, if we lose justification by faith in him alone, there's not a long list of things to accomplish. It's just believe in Jesus that he is Lord. If we lose that, if we lose that we were ungodly, that we were sinners, that we were enemies of God, and at the right time Christ died for us, if we lose that, 
we lose unity in the body. Because we'll begin to believe that I made it in and I made it happen for myself. Or we'll begin to believe that I did X, Y, and Z. Or if we lose Jesus' humanity, we don't remember that we failed the test. If we lose Jesus' divinity, we don't remember that it's God who saves us. We need this truth to level the playing field. To remind us that the way we move on in the Christian life is collapse collapsing into Christ by faith in him and in his redemptive work. You have been saved. You are being saved. And one day you will be fully and finally saved because grace and righteousness reign in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that righteousness has been credited to our account, that we will never run out of righteousness because it is your righteousness. Lord, we don't have time to preach the entirety of the book of Romans this morning, but Lord, I pray that because of that, we would be reminded that we are now dead to sin and we are alive to God, that we would be not just given your righteousness, but then we would now be empowered by your Holy Spirit to walk in it. <clears throat> God, we pray for this truth that's found in verse 5 to be true today, that your love would be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Remind us of our salvation. Remind us of, our, of your love for us, Lord. It's so easy to forget. And help us by faith to collapse into the arms of Christ. The real Jesus, the, the human Jesus and the divine Jesus who carries us. It's in your name we pray.